So my name is Michael O'Sullivan. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Molecular and Integrative Physiological Sciences at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and I'm really excited to be joined today by Jay Ellard. Jay is a distinguished author of several novels examining energy and mindsets and work-life balance. So in today's ATS RSF Assembly podcast series, we're going to be speaking to Jay about energy and mindsets. So why don't we go ahead and get started? So Jay, would you mind describing why mindsets and energy are important? Yeah, so many of us wake up each day and we kind of jump right into our sea of busy before we really check and see what's going on in our mind and in our body and kind of with what, what's happening with us, which is, you know, essentially um, what a lot of people refer to as, as mindfulness. It's just seeing what is there each day. And so I, I focus on helping people learn the skill of awareness, the, one of the foundational skills of mindfulness, which is the ability to see the world and how you show up in it. And it's a huge component of, of having a huge component of having awareness around your energy and states of mind. So when you're aware of kind of what's going on with you, you can make more informed decisions that are a little bit more intentional. Creating a way of being that is going to be a little more reflective and a little less reactive for you. So right, most of us, right, we get out, we get out of bed right away and we jump into either on our phones, we're thinking about the meeting we're going to, we're dealing with family issues, we're dealing with transportation issues, right? We've already like jumped right in and, and haven't had a little bit of that time to say, hey, what's here? Am I happy today? Am I sad today? Is my mind cluttered today? Am I feeling stressed today? So we can begin to work more intentionally with what is actually there, what is actually showing up for us. Interesting. So uh, so you, you mentioned practicing mindfulness. I think we've discussed this previously. Um, so, you know, how often should one reflect and sort of uh, uh, consider their their mindset or their energy state, um, you know, several times a day or, you know, you mentioned each morning we wake up and we sort of just jump into our day without thinking about how we feel. Um, you know, how frequently should one do this? Yeah, so at minimum, I recommend at least two times a day, kind of that beginning, that morning ritual for you, whether it's you're brushing your teeth or your alarm goes off or you're having breakfast, just taking it a moment or two. It doesn't have to be a long thing. It doesn't have to be a complicated thing, but just pausing to reflect and just kind of what's here today. And then again in the evening at the end of the day, what happened at the end of the day? Who, you know, how am I feeling? What's showing up for me now? But then my favorite practice during the business day is more of like a, these kind of micro moments of, intentionality before you walk into a meeting, before you give a presentation, just to be like 30 seconds even. It doesn't have to be overly complicated. And no one even needs to know you're doing it. But it's just checking in what's happening. Who's going to show up to this meeting? Am I feeling really stressed right now and I'm going to walk into this meeting with all that stress and anxiety that actually doesn't belong in this meeting? Or am I going to go ahead and, and, and have the ability to shift out of that stress state and say, okay, wait, that's actually not really relevant to the people in this room and I can take a breath and maybe show up a different way. And so, again, beginning at the end of the day and the beginning of the day, kind of the, my best practice is to recommend. And then if you can begin to cultivate times of kind of before each meeting or a few times a day, it begins to help create awareness so you have more data to understand what's what's going on. How is your energy right now? And you might see some themes or patterns. Like you might notice you have low energy in the mornings or you might notice your energy is low in the evenings. And with that data, you might want to change how your workday flows. You might want to do more, you know, intellectual data processing when your energy is higher and save more mundane tasks for the times of day your energy is lower. 
But if we don't create the time to pause and check in and see what our energy is, then we can't make these shifts to, to better align to our natural rhythms and, and how we're showing up. I see. So so should one maybe consider starting a journal of, you know, how they feel, how their energy is throughout the day, or would it be something more just kind of passive um, and sort of tracking in your mind and then trying to make adjustments down the road? Is that... Yeah, you know, I think it depends because right, there's so many different types of learning styles and, and there are some new apps out on the market too that can help you begin to um, capture some of this, um, these energy states. Some meditation apps will help you with these journals. Or for some people, it might just be beginning to notice and just pausing and noticing. Um, or you can keep a little notebook or, or even um, I have someone who has like a back page in their notebook they carry with them throughout the day and they just kind of make little hash marks morning, evening, afternoon, so they can begin to say, hey, my energy's high here, my energy's low here. So it doesn't have to be overly complicated. It's really just the intentionality and, and the willingness to begin to check in and see what what is happening during different types of day. What type of meetings create high energy in me, create excitement, make me feel alive, make me feel engaged, and what type of meetings make me feel stressed and anxious um, and just beginning to collect data with curiosity and trying to stay out of judgment. That's the other thing I want to add here is when we begin to go down this journey of, of seeing the correlation between our actions and our energy statements, sometimes we go into, um, you know, judging ourselves and trying to create a story around it. All we're trying to do is, is collect data at this point to just see yeah, when we start making judgments, that actually begins to create negative energy because we're making stories about things sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. So, <laughs> is you know some sometimes we're stressed or anxious to go into a meeting, like you mentioned. But is is some level of that good? I mean, we're all human, so is this something? You know, I think many of us feel stressed, but we might not show it as much as others. Um, you know, how much is too much? Yeah, this is such a, a complicated question because the answer is different for each individual, right? We're all like snowflakes when it comes to our relationship with stress and where our own tipping points is, are with stress. And so, as you mentioned, you know, sometimes being in kind of a stress state can can be positive for us in that it might push us to reach a goal, it might push us out of our comfort zone, but it, once we reach that tipping point, that's when it can kind of become harmful to us. And so through creating awareness around our own kind of energy states, we can begin to have the skill of discernment between when too much is too much and when that energy is actually going to be, you know, that stress state is going to be positive for us or when that stress state is starting to actually harm us. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because when we're not paying attention, it all feels the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it all just feels bad or icky or you know uncomfortable. And then over time, there's some discernment that can that can grow, but that only happens when we begin to notice, right? When we have right. the courage and willingness to see what these energy states really are. Mm-hmm. So, would you suggest to maybe younger colleagues in our field to sort of get out there and, and practice being stressed or anxious, and then sort of apply some of these techniques, or um, is it something that, you know, practicing the techniques will lead to less stress? Yeah, that's, let's go with that. Practicing the techniques will lead to 
Um, what I just like to think of instead of less stress is just more resilient because let's be honest, we live in a modern world that has stresses in ways that our ancestors never experienced and we're kind of delusional to think we're going to create a stress-free, a stress-free world. But what we can do is develop our own internal resilience for how we're managing um, stressful or uncomfortable situations or high volumes of change. You know, a lot of organizations... Um, corporate and academic are experiencing a lot of a lot of shift and change. There's so many things that can contribute to this feeling of just ungroundedness. And so, when we're able to cultivate a practice that allows us to check in with with ourselves, we're going to develop more resilience. So over the long term, we have intentionality for the choices we're making because we're making choices from more of a, a calm, reflective state. Right When we're interrupting the sea of busy to just check in, even if it's just 30, 30 60 minutes a couple times, or 30, 60 seconds a couple times a day, right. we're going to be more intentional about the choices we're making, which is going to allow us to be more resilient and more sustainable for the long term. So when we're dealing with you know stress, we're doing it from a more solid foundation. Okay, I see. So... For our, our listeners, what sort of time scale might they expect to start to see some benefits to their own sort of mental health or maybe productivity at work after they start to kind of track their energy or track their, their mindset? Is this something that would change kind of overnight or over the course of weeks or months? Um, you know, I it's it's different for everyone because we're we're all different. For some people, in as little as a couple of weeks, they can start to really begin to see some patterns in how they're showing up. Right. And for some folks, you know, on average, this is not a quick fix. So I just want to say, I want to say that this skill of awareness building around our mind states, our energy states, and taking accountability for the impact our mind states and energy states have on those around us, this journey for many can be a lifetime. And kind of going back to the immediate benefit question, so in as little as a couple of weeks, you can begin to collect some pretty good data about yourself. Right. The complicated part is whether you act on that data or not. <laughs> right, right. And, and this is the true skill of, of awareness that, that we're talking about here. And for some people, once we see something, we might not move to action. Mm-hmm. And we stay in this kind of uncomfortable place for a while. So... And then some people might move right into action. So you'll see a change within a couple of weeks after you start tracking your energy and, and you know really starting to pay attention. And how impactful that change can be depends upon your willingness to maybe act on what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, that's pretty quick, actually. I was su- I'm surprised. It's uh, it's uh, it's good to know. So so maybe so how you know are there any scientific studies? Um, for our scientific uh, community here, um, do, you, do you know of any like neuroscience or physiological comparisons of people who have, you know, been practicing mindfulness or consider their energy um, compared to those who don't, and you know how they're more productive, perhaps in the workplace? Is that? Yeah. So this is in the last, I would say, in the last decade, there has been a tremendous amount of research being done across a lot of different disciplines around the impact of, of meditation and mindfulness in in workplaces as well as in you know outside of workplaces. And what the the summary of the research kind of stitches together is that the direct 
there's a direct link to meditation and well-being. And the, the science of meditation will tell us that when the parasympathetic nervous system is healthy and stimulated, our bodies will experience increased immunity, uh, healthy hearts, um, stabilize, you know, stable blood pressure, as well as decreased inflammation in the body and even um, healthy genes. And, you know, in your genes, I think this is so fascinating. Remember, I just want to be clear, I'm not a scientist here, so I'm talking oh, about the scientific information. So I want to apologize to anyone who has more information on the science if I'm, if I'm um, saying any of these words wrong or you know, slightly off here. But um, in your genes, you have your DNA, and in your DNA, you have something called a telomer. And these telomeres you know, are the protective protein caps that are part of the DNA. They're at the end of the DNA strand, kind of like little tails and they allow for continued cell replication. And the longer the telomere, the more times the cell can divide and refresh. And when our bodies are under stress, what the science shows, the research shows, is these telomeres get damaged, and they get shorter and shorter. And what meditation studies, multiple meditation studies, have been able to show is that through, through meditation, these telomeres actually can start to grow back and get longer. So basically our cells can begin to regenerate themselves when we are able to cultivate more kind of silence and reflective attention in our life. Talking about meditation studies, is um, some studies have shown that uh, gray and white matter volume increase in the brain and cortisol thickness can maintain as our aging occurs when we're practicing meditation. So this means that structural degeneration in our brain can be slowed. Oh, interesting. And there's some, some relatively newer studies that are looking at the impact of, of kind of these meditation or mindfulness techniques that they can have on dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, and so the, the summary of all this is, is when we are able to find these intentional states of silence, which we can talk about as a mind state, just paying attention to what our mind state is and maybe maybe the willingness to alter or shift it, we can actually shift our brainwave frequencies, thus being able to shift the you know, physiology of our body and intentionally activate our parasympathetic nervous systems. And so there's, this is a relatively new area um, of scientific study, but the, the results have already proven um, to be very beneficial to our just overall well-being. Well, that's really cool, Jay. So do you think maybe in the clinic, like doctors might start uh, employing some of this into their patients' lives? So, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, Alzheimer's patients and you know, personal mm-hmm. reflection or state of energy. Um, that might lead to a, a better prognosis for these patients. Is that something you think is coming? I, I do. I am super hopeful about it. And we're seeing a lot of, um, there's even some symposiums now on um, consciousness in the scientific, science, where science and consciousness meet, where there are a lot of researchers around the world who are beginning to study this and, and introducing these types of practices into, into patient life. And, you know, it's early and it's still, you know, seen, it has been traditionally seen as um, maybe more of a spiritual activity up until, I could say, about a decade ago where you see a lot of corporations now employing these techniques. And so we're kind of in a new phase of, you know, adoption or acceptance into this as just a well-being technique as opposed to maybe a, you know, a path to spiritual enlightenment technique. And so I think as 
the conversation begins to shift on this, we're going to see more adoption, not only in healthcare places, but there are a lot of schools right now who are teaching younger children um, how to, you know, really identify with their mind states and talk about their feelings in a different way and be able to identify with their energy states and be able to modulate them a little bit. And there's a lot of work being done in prison systems as well. So we have schools and healthcare clinics and prison systems and corporations all looking at these techniques to help us be, you know, more productive as well as, you know, increase well-being. It's a pretty exciting time in this industry. Yeah, that's phenomenal. That's really cool. Um, yeah. So, so what else, you know, besides personal reflection, how important are, uh, you know, fitness or diet, exercise, and sleep patterns in contributing to your uh, your mindset or your, your state of energy? Yeah, so, you know, all of these things are so important because as, as most of people who are listening know, your body is such a beautiful, delicate, integrated ecosystem. And what we put into it dramatically impacts our energy. For example, you know, we just had a recent, you know, Thanksgiving holiday, and those of you who had a whole bunch of pie and sugar and cheese, you know, your body felt different. Your, you know, your body feels different. What we put into our body has it has an impact on our whole system. And right. so, when we're a little bit more intentional about that, then we can begin to um, create certain outcomes that we want. Uh, if you know you're going into a week where you're going to be writing a lot or doing some pretty intense data analysis or maybe even presenting, then you can begin to think differently about the type of food maybe you want to consume as well as what is your relationship with sleep need to be that, that week. Mm-hmm. And so we can begin to be more choose, you know, mindful or intentional about it as opposed to staying stuck in some of our habitual patterns. Well, this is what I eat because this is what I eat because it's convenient or I know how to cook it or fix it. And, you know, so instead we're like, wow, I should probably have more protein this week because I'm going to need extra energy or maybe I should have less carbs because they make me feel X, Y, Z. And and this is where each body is different. So kind of going back to the skill of awareness again, how does it make me feel when I have too much salt or sugar or, you know, whatever? Um, And then sleep. I mean, oh, my gosh, the research around sleep right now is super exciting. I mean, there's a reason Mm -hmm. we sleep right? There has to be, else we wouldn't be sleeping. And so what we're starting to see about sleep is it's essentially like our, you know, we plug ourselves in at night. And Mm -hmm. the more sleep we get, the higher quality sleep we get, the more more energy and mind power we're going to have during the day, which is very opposite to some of the ways we've lived our, our corporate life, our academic life previously, where you know, it was seen as a badge of honor to be like, oh, I haven't slept in three days, you know, like right. it, was, it made us look more important. And, and we're starting to see that trend and those beliefs being reversed as well. Right. That sounds great. That's uh, definitely heard of a lot of, you know, residents in the clinic discussing their uh, sleep patterns and, you know, lack thereof. So, um, so I've had a lot of colleagues yeah. complain about difficulty sleeping, you know, during a stressful period in their career, um, you know, leading mm-hmm. up to a big presentation or, you know, a thesis defense or something like this. So um, mm-hmm. how can a state of mind or, or energy contribute to a better night's rest? I, mean, I feel like if you go to bed with too much energy, maybe it's difficult to sleep, so you want to sort of deplete your energy throughout the day. Is that something that should be practiced? Yeah, or just like intentional, kind of the evening practice, a ritual I like in the evening, especially during stressful times, is, is a lot of us have our, our pattern in the evening where, you know, we maybe watch TV or watching a, you know, listening to a podcast or watching videos or with family or whatever. We go, we read, and then we go to sleep. Well, how do we interrupt that a little bit to say, 
wow, I'm feeling a little anxious before I go to sleep right now, and maybe I need to take a walk around the block, or maybe I just need to sit quietly for a couple minutes, or maybe I need to do a whole bunch of jumping jacks or whatever, like figuring out a way to see what you're going to sleep with and kind of releasing it a little bit, or maybe you just write a list, a to-do list, of like these are the things I'm anxious about. You just put it in a journal or a notebook and, and try to release it a little bit. Um, it's like uh, taking pressure out of a, you know, a tea kettle boiling or something. You know, we want to be able to remove that pressure in some way. And what I've found over the years, you know, talking to the thousands of people about about this exact scenario is it really goes back to a conversation about the anxiety or stress we might be having that we're taking into our sleep with us. Right. And so when we can interrupt that pattern and either have the conversation with ourselves and say, wow, I'm really anxious about this decision I just made. I don't know how it's going to play out, but you know what? I can't do anything about it right now while I sleep. It's going to be fine tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or asking, you know, maybe while I go to sleep, give me an answer. Maybe an answer will come up. Or having the conversation about it. It's a lot of times when we avoid talking about these things or identifying the the feelings we're having or the unpleasantness, that's when it starts impacting, really impacting when we're not talking about it. That's when the sleep's interrupted or we can't modulate it. Right, um, right. Yeah. yeah. I've even heard of, you know, in severe situations of colleagues complaining they've had a dream about something so specific and woken up at like four in the morning and, you know, can't sleep and uh, so worried about that. So maybe some of those techniques would really help. Um, have you seen anything, you know, looking at city life versus more rural areas? You know, do people living in Manhattan struggle more than those living in, you know, eastern Washington, for example? Is this, uh, you know? You know, there's some interesting research um, I was just looking at around soundscapes and the the sound, the ambient sound in our background and our life. Um, for some people can actually increase, like, cortisol and come, some of the, you know, stress by our flight hormones in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And so the only the only thing that I've seen that applies to this kind of from a scientific level is that um the impact of noise kind of creates like a mild level higher fight or flight, you know, place in the body for people when they're living in louder. And it could be it could be London, it could might even be like downtown Seattle versus eastern Washington. Um that said what I have seen in my work is is most of our modern day stress is created from an internal place inside of us um, regarding kind of a lack of conversation we might be having with ourselves or a misalignment of living our values where we might really want to be doing something else, but we're kind of doing this because we think it's what we should do. Um, or we're kind of caught in these like unintentional habits of life and we're not really connected to why we're doing what we're doing. And that seems to translate across all genders and geographies and locations. And I've had the incredible privilege to to do this work in over 50 different countries. And I found really little difference um, between country to country. There are some nuances, for example, India versus Russia versus Europe. That said, most human beings want the same things, right? Easy joy, meaningful engagement, and connection with self and others. Right. Yeah. So have you found, like, you know, in other, other countries, maybe where spirituality or, you know, in India, you, you mentioned, that, you know, maybe mm-hmm. where yoga or 
self-reflection is more important? Um, do you find you know people are maybe more happy or less stressed? Oh, this is such a good question. I want to write a book about this because it's been such a fascinating journey. So, you know, I would say no. In some okay. ways, I, I see a higher level of stress because there might be um, the same thing um, in Latin America as well, where there might be a higher level of, you know, religious or spiritual acceptance to some of these ideas. But then the work world, whether it doesn't matter what, what it is you're doing for a profession, has very different messages these days. Mm-hmm. that are largely in conflict with some of these more kind of esoteric or spiritual beliefs that some of these cultures and communities um, teach as well. So the internal conflict in some ways is actually higher um, or the internal levels of stress between the conflict of, of these different messages. Mm-hmm. And there's a maybe a more of an agreement around like, yes, this is a way that I would hope to live my life, but I feel even further away from it and I feel more stressed about it because I know it's, I know these things to be in my body in a different way. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's really interesting. (laughs) Have you found, you know, younger, younger generations are finding things, you know, life to be more stressful, you know, with disappearing sort of pension plans and, you know, house prices skyrocketing or, you know, are all the the financial stress sort of accumulating on younger generations or? uh, Yeah, that's a good question, Michael. Not to be a total downer here, but yes. So I have done, I do work with um, people as young as high school age. So I, I get asked sometimes to work with high school interns who are like in these kind of higher performing, you know, internships, corporations, and the level of stress and anxiety they're feeling is, 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 is very intense and very real um, Mm because they have such a drive to be competitive, to try to stand out in this very complicated competitive world that has been created, um, that that is the reality that we're sitting in, is kind of in this corporate, this traditional corporate structure where where a large variety of jobs have li- largely kind of gone away, and so there's a lot of uncertainty. And they've seen their parents go through economic hard times, and there's um, also a belief that it can be different. So they're more open to trying new things. Be- new ways of being and new ways of showing up because they don't have the rigidity that, let's say, you know, Gen X and baby boomers and older have. So there's a more willingness to try, but there's a, what I've noticed is just a a deeper level of kind of grief and sadness. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. (laughs) But that said, they're willing to be open and learn new things. (laughs) Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, And this is, I see it as, an optimistic thing because there's more people willing to have a different conversation now than there has been. When I started this type of work a decade ago, um, a lot of executives that you know would bring me into the companies were were terrified to have me come in because they thought everybody was going to quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, no, don't start talking about these things because everybody are, they're going to realize they're miserable and they're all going to leave, and and that's <sighs> clearly not the case. What happens is we we learn how to have a different conversation about these topics. And we learn how to come together and, and, and talk about the habits we have and the patterns we've created that might not be serving our desired outcomes anymore. Mm-hmm. And so with the the science that we've talked about, 
and the world changing in the way it had, has been changing in the last few years, there's just a more openness to start talking about some of these things and say, hey, you know, maybe these old patterns don't serve us as well anymore and there's a different way. And so we're in this nice experimental phase, which can be emotionally uncomfortable for a lot of folks. Um, but I believe we're at the beginning of creating a new way to work and a new world of work, which oh, is why really I get out of bed every day. <laughs> yeah, right. Cool. So maybe, you know, for our ATS audience in the clinic or in research facilities, we could start thinking about having some seminar series or some, you know, small discussions with each other about energy and mindsets. And, you know, are there other resources you could point us towards to um you know, begin having these discussions. Are there books we could read? Um, I know you're, you've written several yourself. Um, are there, you know, websites or, uh, you know, where could we look for more information? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of information out there now around kind of these new ways of work, which is great. So my company, we our website is Simple Intentions, and we have a resource page where we try to um, list a lot of resources from other organizations as well as kind of our our own content. Because as an industry, it's really important that we all work together to help communicate and shift different ways of being. Um, depending upon the type of work an organization wants to do, this is where it gets a little complicated because it's um, a relatively new industry coming together. So uh, for there's a, UC Berkeley has a, a website called the um, Center for Greater Good, I believe it's called, and they have a tremendous amount of resources around kind of compassion in the workplace and kindness and well-being. And then... Um, uh, John Kabat-Zinn is, is another great researcher, and he has a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and um, I believe he's out of um, Boston as well. He's at the University of Massachusetts. I might be wrong on that, but John Kabat-Zinn has some really great research. Um, Dan Siegel is another leading researcher around mindfulness in the workplace. And then Jack Cornfield is another um, person who's one of my teachers and he looks at, he's a, a Buddhist psychologist and so he takes kind of the psychology, psychoanalyst route around applying some of these different um, principles and concepts. So those are a few top of mind that kind of hit a gamut of, of level of interest um, mm -hmm. that the audience might be interested in. Um, and then there's an event called, you know, Wisdom 2.0 that happens every year in San Francisco where it's a few thousand people get together to talk about mindfulness as it applies to a lot of different industries. And so it's kind of like a, a mindfulness Disneyland type experience for a couple of days that bring together a lot of cross disciplines to talk about kind of this nexus of consciousness and technology and modern day living. And that's another really great fun event and resource. And I think they have a lot of videos on their website as well. Oh, great. Well, that sounds like a, you know, a great start for our listeners. I think yeah. uh, some of our clinicians and researchers could start to think about this in their own settings. Um, so I wanted to say thanks so much, Jay, for joining us. That was really intriguing. I think uh, a lot of these uh, practices should be employed more, uh, especially in stressful work situations. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully our listeners can benefit from some of these. And, uh, you know, I wanted to say thanks to you and to Chelsea Elkins for setting up this uh, podcast and the rest of the American Thoracic Society uh, Respiratory Structure Function uh, Committee. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you.